I'm Sam Mitchell, and these are my stories. Hi folks, how are a good day today? Let me the first welcome you to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Now before we begin, I must know that I am not a doctor psychiatrist. If your son dies to be diagnosed with autism, please see a physician. I'll always be based on my experiences. Also on the right to the intro and outro, they're found on ytmp3.com. I also have missions today to review with all of you. The mission of Autism Rocks and Rolls is to take the stigma off of autism and other conditions that may think are disabilities. People spectrum are not broken and do not need to be fixed. Those that conditions or abilities want to be pitied, there's nothing to be sorry about. And also have some people I like to thank. I must thank Victoria for coming on my show in C235. Yes, I lost my mind by Victoria, but what a great lady, and I hope everyone has a chance to meet this person outside of her job. And more Cutthroat Kitchen family has come my way because I got some from the barbecue babe, Chef Jody Tapple. Thank you again, Chef Jody. Now today, this is a personal treat for myself and Autism Rock Rolls because I have one of my teenage heroes. The hero I am referring to is American comedian Brad Lokley. Brad is most known for being in the humorous reality TV series True TV Presents World's Dumbest. NBC viewers might recognize from last comic standing since he was placed as a semi-finalist in season nine. Brad has additionally appeared on a variety of programs on E, VH1, MTV, Logo, and many others. Radio listeners may be familiar with Brad's voice from his numerous appearances on the Frank DeCaro show or as a guest co-host on Sirius XM's Morning Jolt with Larry Flick. And since 2010, Patty Lupon, Sutton Foster, Vanessa Williams, Kathy Griffin, Leah DeLaria, and Leslie Jordan have performed with Brad in front of tens of thousands of people in more than 30 different countries. I do not only have him on just because he is one of my heroes, but he's an accepting human of others. Let's all welcome the impressive and heroic Brad Lokley to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Brad, my buddy. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. It's so good to meet you, man. After coming home from school, I was run run to that TV to watch World's Diamonds to see you, so. Oh, that's so sweet. And yeah, listen, every comedian who gets into comedy and dedicates their life to comedy does so because they want to make people laugh through the dark times. So that makes me very happy that that me and that show and everybody else is able to be there. So my first question to you is, what does being an advocate for accepting human beings mean to you? To me, it's the core of being a good person in the world is accepting other people regardless of what that is. I think the best we can do for ourselves and for others is to see ourselves in other people. And whether we're talking about autism or race or sexuality or nationality or religion or anything that makes up a human being and their experience. Like a lot of people by default seem to choose to fear things or hate things or not want to understand things. And I just don't get that. So I think for those of us who feel differently and feel okay, open and supporting it's our job to speak out about that and tell people that there's a better more loving way to treat each other there's a great example i know your comedy style is a lot of like off the top let's call it that where it's yeah. radar you would think in society it's a taboo absolutely but why the heck are they taboos it's the part of life when i was a little kid which was a long time ago there was a book that parents would read their little kids called everybody poops and it literally was just teaching everybody that you know what we all kind of do the same things everybody Everybody has farted in public, everybody has burped, everybody's fallen down, everybody's embarrassed themselves, but it doesn't have to be embarrassing. People don't have to feel that way. What's even better is when you are out in public, you just don't care. You're like, I'll burp in public. Heck, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Listen, life is short and life is hard. So there's enough real things to worry about in each of our lives in the world. It's crazy to me that people get worked up about silly little things or silly little differences. Let's go back to you like thinking about accepting others. What were your initial thoughts that 
thought you were going to be an advocate for acceptance. Like, I know you were probably starting to see that, oh, there needs to be more acceptance in this world because one, I have my own story, but two, also because of just the quality of this world. I mean, when I was a little kid, I think I was very lucky to be raised by parents who really don't have really any bigotry or hatred in their heart. My parents always raised me to be kind to others and to treat everybody like I would want to be treated, treat people as my equals. But when I was 12 years old, I realized I was gay. That was in the late 80s. And I came out very young at a time when kids absolutely didn't come out. I came out at a time where most adults were still in the closet. And it was the peak of the AIDS crisis. So people had a lot of fear of homosexuals. They thought they could catch a deadly disease by touching us or being near us or using the same bathroom as us. And I really saw a lot of the cruelty that was in people then from a very early age. But I also saw a lot of the kindness that was in people. What I started to notice is anytime anybody would be cruel to me, there was always three people who would stand up and stand by my side just because they thought cruelty was wrong. And so I just started choosing to pay attention to the kinds of people who stand up against cruelty rather than pay attention or give credit to the people who create let me ask you this, because I used to be that guy who would pay attention to those mean, cruel sure. people who would want to kick you in the shins. How can people shift their mindset to, all right, I need to focus more on these people that care versus people who want to kick me in the shins? It's always a lot of work. It's always a struggle. None of us feel good if we open social media and it's not even somebody we know. It's a total stranger with no face on their profile picture, but they've said something cruel or mean or hateful towards us and they don't even know us personally. Of course, we're going to feel something around that. But I think what's important is every single person gets to choose who and what they value. World. And I remember being a little kid and there was a bully at school. This was before I even came out as gay. We were little kids and he was just a bully to everybody. He was mean to teachers. He got in trouble all the time. He beat up other little kids. He didn't have a lot of friends. And one day he called me something probably fat or stupid. And I remember coming home all upset and crying and my mother saying, who said that to you? That's horrible. And I said, it's this boy, Jimmy. And she said, isn't Jimmy the bully that you hate and nobody likes? She was like, why would you care what Jimmy thinks of about. You think Jimmy's a bad person, and I agree with you. I think Jimmy is a bad kid. So what does it matter what bad people think about you? You should care what good people, because if good people think you are being selfish or mean or cruel, that should make you stop and think about yourself. But she just said to me, she was like, you shouldn't judge yourself based on what bad people think you you should judge yourself on what good people and that kind of permanently changed my mindset i could kind of testimonial myself for that because i thought when i was in school i would be the kid oh i'm gonna play video games all entire life these guys they're not gonna support me well now i'm running a podcast with again someone i watched on television for a long time someone that i looked up to which is you and a lot of others like mick foley i watched a ton of pro wrestling and he's also a really nice person when you meet him outside of wrestling but my point i'm gonna cross here is i thought i wasn't going to be that guy. I thought I was going to be the person having a podcast with 15k downloads and getting to travel. But now I see like, oh, they're actually just working at Walmart. And the truth is that unhappy people try to make other people unhappy. 
change. So I think the best we can do is if you want to be a happy person and you want the people in your life to think of you as kind and loving and somebody who they trust, the way to do that is to just try as hard as you can to put that good energy out there and that good stuff out there because bad unhappy people are always going to put bad unhappy energy out. Somebody who hates themselves is going to hate other people. And if you don't hate other people, you also have to stop and say, if I don't hate other people, then I also can't hate myself because I'm a person too. So I can't be down on myself. I can't beat myself up too much because if I don't think other people should be doing that to themselves, then I can't let myself do it to myself too. It's honestly yeah. sad that there's so much people who feel bad about themselves that they have to go pick on someone who's actually really successful. At the end of the day, that unhappiness is their own punishment. Even if I open up Instagram in the morning and I see something that pisses me off or somebody said or did something cruel, the truth is I can delete it. I can block them. I don't ever have to see them or speak to them again. And they're just going to go on with the rest of their day being mean to people. And I'm going to choose to go on the, with the rest of my day having a great time with friends and family and with my audiences at shows. That seems like a lot better use of my time on earth than trying to argue with some anonymous person on social media media or some stranger on the street about what they think about me or politics or other people. Now, how do you think someone with an accepting brain like yourself operates? I think my brain is a pretty crazy place. <laughs> I can agree with that. But like I said, <laughs> I'm crazy too, and I love it. Also, that's a big thing for me about what I've always felt about autism, which we kind of try to define in a great way. But there's a lot of different ways of looking at the world, and there's a lot of different ways of processing information. And I think the reason why human beings are fascinating and interesting and can do amazing things is because we don't all process the world the same. We don't all see the same things and hear the same things in art and music. We don't all feel the same things from the same stimuli in the world. You can put a hundred people in a room and they don't have to be on the autism spectrum or not on the autism spectrum and they will all see and feel and process something you give them or do to them in a hundred different ways. Or two you people know? if you think about it because yeah. there's a lot of similarities with us I can tell but there's a lot of differences too. I mean you like sure. men. I like women. Sure but at the end of the day it's still just people liking people. <laughs> I think too many people find validation in thinking okay I can only be relevant. Like my experience, my thoughts, my existence can only be valid if I find one person, a hundred people, a million people who are quote unquote exactly like, and you're never going to find anyone who's exactly like anybody else. We should stop looking to justify our own existences through other people. I think every human being is enough. From You can wake up in the morning, you don't have to go out and save the world. You don't have to go out and cure cancer. You don't have to go out and run into a burning building and save a baby you don't have to go get straight a's if you do it's great but you're valuable enough to the world and to the people who love you just by existing and i think there's a lot of cases that can go to that i mean i remember a lot of times with my family being around a bonfire and that's the best times of my life there was no dressing up no luxury and if that makes you and everybody in that group happy like that's enough you don't have to compare it to well you know we're having a great time at this bonfire but we're not billionaires on a yacht. There's plenty of people in that situation who actually don't really want to be there. <laughs> we spend way too much 
much time comparing ourselves and the value of ourselves and of our lives to other people rather than just saying, do I like my life right now? Do I value my life? Do I have friends I love and care about? If I don't think I do, then I need to do something. But I don't need to like say, well, do I have as many friends as Steve across the street? Who cares? That shouldn't make a difference. It's, it's like the Bon Jovi song. It's my life. I love Bon Jovi. But it is. And it is your life. It's like exercise or dieting or studying for a test. It's easy to talk about it. It's not as easy to do it, to practice it every single day. And the truth is none of us ever do it perfectly. It's not about perfection. It's not about saying, oh, I made it through an entire day without like getting pissed off about something somebody said or did or blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's unhealthy too. Like you just, you got to try to do the best you can every day for you and the people you care around you. And if you didn't have a good day, the advantage is you're going to get another day tomorrow. You can choose to try to make it a better day tomorrow. And here's another song reference. You don't have to listen to Daniel Powder's Bad Day 24-7. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. They're natural emotions. And there are things you should be sad or angry about. Those are valid. I always say it like this, and I think it's because I'm a comedian. Whenever any of us is really sad, when we're heartbroken, when we're crying, when we've suffered a great loss... There's a part of us that thinks, I'm going to now be sad forever. You can't see the end of your sadness. You can't see the end of your anger or your tears. But when you're happy and laugh, no one ever stopped laughing because their brain stopped and thought, well, I'm laughing right now, but I'm not going to laugh forever. So why would I bother to be happy and laugh now? So it's only when we're in pain or anger or fear that we think those things, just because they're happening right now, are going to never end. And that just makes it worse because then you start thinking like, well, now I'm angry and I'm still angry tomorrow and I'm still thinking about it and I'm not moving on from it. But when you're happy, you don't go, oh, I'm just going to be happy forever. You know the happiness will end, but you still are happy for as long as you can be. But when we're sad or angry or scared, I think we have to sometimes stop and remind ourselves, I've been sad or angry or scared before and it didn't last forever before and it's not going to last forever right now. And so maybe I should start thinking about, does it even have to last this? long just calm down and put it all in perspective maybe go out for a walk just to clear my head if i'm alone and angry and scared and afraid maybe i need to go be around friends and family if i'm angry and mad when i'm around them right now because something bad's going on maybe i need some time to myself just to switch it up my experience the more i try to think like that in moments like that the faster i get back to the good stuff what is the most rewarding and the most difficult thing for being an acceptance advocate i think the most rewarding thing is it's always made me feel good to treat other people well i think it's always comforting as human beings when you treat someone kindly and with acceptance and you treat them equally you feel more kind and treated well and accepted by anybody that you've been nice to being mean to people is always ostracized not just to the person you're being mean to but to yourself you are pushing people away and people don't like to get pushed away but the truth is if you're pushing people away you are then left all alone in the middle of a field with you know one and nothing around you i think the hardest thing about advocating just for being an autism advocate being an lgbtq advocate being a race advocate and just like a human advocate is the fact that people who are really resistant to it tend to come at you and fight with you as if it's a war You're attacking them just by saying, like, I actually don't think whatever particular group of people or person is that different than any of us. People get very angry at being, 
questioned about their phobia or their wrong assumptions because they feel like they're being judged. And the truth is they are. If somebody says something racist or homophobic or sexist to me or something gross or stupid about someone with autism, like I will say something about it. I will try to be reasonably polite and not yell because I know that they're probably not going to listen at all. But to me, it's hard not to be judgmental of someone who's not treating other people with basic human decency. Sorry, but do you have any relation to autism? Because you keep like bringing like you're an autism advocate. And I'm, and if you don't, that's fine. I'm just wondering if you do. Because... I do have people with autism in my family and I do have friends with autism. Oh, tell me who. I wish you would have told yeah. me this, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely, I have have people on my mother's side of the family who are on the autism spectrum. I have multiple friends in, who work here in Hollywood in various creative jobs who are on varying ends of the spectrum. But I mean, the truth is, I also think it's far more common than people realize. Again, I think there are these old kind of stupid stereotypes. There are still people in the world who think like autism and Down syndrome are the same. There are still people in the world that think autism is some kind of mental dysfunction. But again, there are still people in the world who think that black people are genetically inferior to white people. There are people who still think the earth is flat. So <laughs> This one's good. In the year 2012, the world's going to end. Hmm. Past 2012, isn't it? <laughs> right. And people believe a lot of crazy things and people believe a lot of things that are easy to dis. And I'm a big believer in science and I'm a big believer in logic. It absolutely gets me very angry and infuriated when people insist on believing things and promoting things that are not only false and easily proven wrong, but hurtful or damaging to people or groups of people or the environment or the world we live in. I go from zero to 100 really quick. But at the end of the day, I also know, sadly, it's human nature. Like, we are a very nervous, fearful mammal overall. And part of us evolving as human beings and as people, letting go of some of those kind of primal thoughts of fearing everything new, fearing something we haven't seen before, fearing a person with a personality or a gender or a race or a religion or from a part of the world we've never been to or know much about. To me, I find meeting new people and learning things about people I've never met before I find it exhilarating and I find it eye-opening. But a lot of people find it scary. A lot of people shut down and don't want to engage. That's really about them, not about the person that they're shutting down. And I'm at fault for it, actually. I'll admit it. One time I had a guest on the show, Raven, the wrestler in 207. What about WWE's Raven? But I had all these personality disorders. And when I read them, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have like this really arrogant, mean person on my show. I'll admit it. I was wrong because he was actually a really nice guy just with some big personality disorders. I have someone very close to me who has schizoaffective disorder and, and is really right on the borderline of a diagnosis of personality dissociation and what would classically be called multiple personalities. And Hollywood is certainly not off the hook on this. A lot of people's ideas of mental health and medical conditions, psychological conditions, and variations come from horrible Hollywood stereotypes in movies and TV. And the truth is there are people with schizoaffective disorder, and they're not out there turning into 19 different serial killers. They're just people with very legitimate psychological and physical needs who are just trying to live their 
What's sad though too is some of the behaviors we do like we cannot help because I don't have like the worst anger issues alive but I have anger issues. I won't lie. So when I get real you know hyped up I haven't punched a wall yet but when I want to and I did when I was younger granted but when I want to still I mean and when I did I felt bad because I felt like at that time it was I couldn't control it. You're not alone in that and that's certainly not something that's exclusive to people on the autism spectrum. There's a lot of people. Anger is a very intense human emotion and we all have it and it's very scary when we can't manage it or when we feel like it's out of control but again then if you're part of a group that the world has decided to view differently a lot of people are going to go oh well they have anger management problems because they have autism or they have anger management problems because they have schizoaffective disorder i mean i grew up in a very rural white area that had a lot of racism so there were a lot of stereotypes about the black and latino kids are more violent than the white kids no the truth is teenage boys a lot of them get angry and a lot of them punch walls <laughs> it has as much to do with being 16 and having too many hormones in your body and not knowing what to do with them, then it has to do with your race, your economic status, your autism, your homosexuality. I would agree. And Brad, our child are a lot alike, actually, believe it or not, because I actually, and I still do, and I have no problem with this area. I love it here. I mean, you got great people, but my area is very conservative. I mean, you go to church and yeah, you yeah. read the Bible. That is another problem. My best friend goes to church and I have friends who do that. One of them is a very old school minded person. I think sometimes I wasn't fit for this community because of that belief. I'm like, okay, do what you want. I don't care. I'm not going to judge you based on someone's beliefs. No, I completely understand. You can't choose your family and you can't choose where you were born. For better or for worse. If you have a mom and a dad that you really love or a grandmother or grandfather or caretaker, you're lucky. There's plenty of people who get born into families that they don't connect with that aren't the right place for them. I was never meant to live in a rural area. From the time I was a little kid, my parents saw it. There was no way to know, but I had no interest in being in the country. I had no interest in being outdoors. I like to be at the beach is the closest to the outdoors I like to be. But other than that, I like to live in really big cities and travel to really big cities. So as soon as I was old enough and I went to college and I started working, I moved to cities because that's boy on the where it's right for me to be. I'm hanging up now. No, I'm kidding. I love <laughs> I try not to be judgmental or make assumptions about people who don't want that life for themselves. I know for a fact every person who lives in the country isn't a racist, bigoted redneck. Because I grew up in the country, and again, there were just as many, if not more, really good people who were not any of those stereotypes than there were the people who were that stereotype. And when I moved to big cities, I was shocked to see that there was still a lot of bigotry because growing up in the country, I was like, if I can just make it to the big city, everybody's going to be so evolved and everyone's going to be so cool. And I'm like, no, there's assholes everywhere. Yeah, literally. Like, can't escape assholes. Everybody poop. They poop out of their mouth and their ass. Exactly. Everything they say is shit. <laughs> oh, man. I do want to talk to you more about the show I found you on, so World's Dumbest. So what was the funniest thing that you saw on World's Dumbest. I will say, anytime we did World's Dumbest 
hillbillies. There was something that was called the Redneck Olympics. And I don't think it happens anymore, but it was like an annual event in the deep south. And they were all kind of like physical challenges, party challenges, but all based around. They would make a giant eight foot deep mud puddle. And people had to build things to try to get across the mud puddle. And most of them just sank into the mud and they needed to be towed out with hitches. And just wild stuff where I was like, people spent a lot of time putting this together. It's one thing when you're just riding a skateboard and you flip upside down and you hit your head and we make fun of you. But when I'm like, it took hundreds of people months to build like the giant mud puddle for all of you to belly flop into. Like to me, that's dedication to stupid that it really is almost breathtaking. I'll tell you my page with, it's what you commentated on. So this was early on in the season. So, so there was this band playing for these guys. Well, it had a parachuter come in. He's coming down to the band. He kicks the people and he kicks the tube. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I quote, and this is my favorite quote from Rolls Dumbest. He kicked that tuba's ass. I also remember we had a few clips where it was people driving, either driving backwards the wrong way down the wrong side of the road or forwards the wrong way down the wrong side of the road for miles. Where I was just like, at what point do you not realize do you think every other car on the road is going the wrong way? Like that they're all honking at you and veering off the road and flipping. Do you really think you're the only one going out of 200 cars? Yeah, talk about somebody who's like arrogant and stupid. You are egotistical enough to think that you couldn't possibly be wrong, that you turned the wrong way down a highway. So you're literally like, no, look at all these assholes. I'm going the right way. They should all turn around and go my way. Exactly. That to me was was always amazing. We had four or five instances at least of that in all those years. And that was amazing to me because I, I can't imagine we never have the footage of like when the cop finally stops them, what they say. And I'm like, what do you even say? That person now has to go to court and the judge has to look at that footage. And it's just like, you have no defense. Like you ran 200 cars off the road going the wrong way and you still think you were going the right way. And then there's another one too that kind of reminds me of they were skiing and then instead of skiing forward they were skiing backwards down the hill. And over here you're saying when I'm dying I really want to go ass forward. (laughs) It's true though but think about it. I can't imagine anything more terrifying because on that show, we had plenty of clips of people going down a mountain skiing or in, you know, some stupid contraption and they start tumbling. But again, at least you're tumbling forward. So you see your death coming like you can block. You can try to protect yourself. The idea of going backwards towards your death. So you have no ability to know when you're going to hit the rock is just terrifying. Yeah, I, but I yeah, also I'm think like, it's oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. When's this rock gonna come? Come on, get this rock over with. When I was a kid, we used to go tubing down the Delaware River, and my father used to love when I was a little kid when we get in the tube, not in a choppy part, not where it was dangerous, but he would turn the tube around so we were going backwards down the river, and I would always freak out because I'm like, we cannot see what the river is doing. It's all fun and games until we now hit a rock and we're no. dead in the middle of the river. Then he's like, oh, shoot. Um, Love you, son. Yeah, I'm like, this is supposed to be fun. Like, if this was supposed to be like casually floating down the river peacefully. This was not supposed to be like a life or death challenge. 
Oh, did you see um, this one was good? I laugh at this is probably the funniest one. So it was competitions. That's probably my favorite category of the dumbest. And uh, so they had yeah. this big hill and it's in England. I call it the cheese rolling contest. They had a- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Roll it down the hill and they hit the cheese guys. Oh, let's go chase the cheese. And here they are tumbling, they're falling and they're breaking their butts and there's ENTs right there. I'm like, how is this fun for you? Yeah, if you're doing anything, we're at the finish line, they already have ambulances waiting. That should tell you something about the activity you're about to partake in. If you go to the Olympics, if you go to a football game or any kind of sports thing, there's somewhere there's an EMT. But when they have active ambulances turned on and ready to go at the bottom of the hill you're supposed to roll down, it's probably because a lot of people don't make it to the bottom of the hill. No. So no. again, why are you doing this on Saturday for fun? You can't call out to sick on work on Monday because you said, well, the wheel of cheese got away from me on the hill and I'm in a full body cast. Like yeah, I mean, now like, you don't have a job anymore. The boss will probably be laughing at you like you chase cheese. Really? Get your butt yeah. to work. I want to see this. If I'm remembering correctly, too, and it's always this way when we would do competitions and it would take place in Europe, it's always something like, well, this tradition has been going on since 1642. Well, I'm like, well, right. In 1642, there was no TV. There was, wasn't even books. Most people died from diarrhea by the time they were 15 years old. So, yeah, in 1642, rolling a wheel of cheese down the hill was probably about as fun as life was gonna get. And you did hope you died at the bottom of the hill so that you didn't die from dysentery at 30. But it's not 1642, stop rolling the cheese down. Exactly. There was one in Europe I remember that was great too. I about laughed when I said this, but it reminds me of you said, it was in Europe, they were this little country, they had oranges, and they were like humbling the crap out of each other with them. Oh yeah, there's and a lot of events like that in Europe. Like, I got a black guy and I feel great. Yeah, I, I bet you I'm do, buddy. I'm very blessed, but because I get to spend a lot of every summer for the last 13 years performing and touring in Europe, and that's always when these festivals are going on. And I've now seen some of these festivals in real life. A lot of small villages in Europe have some kind of festival where they throw shit at people. I don't know why. I'm sure it all started in medieval times when, again, people's only amusement was to throw shit at each other, like monkeys in a zoo cage. But it's always pummeling with oranges, potatoes, rotten fruit, tomatoes. There's one city where it's, and it's always connected to religion. It's the patron saint of the town or something. There's one where they actually drop clay pots out the window as people race down the street trying to avoid being hit by shattering sharp clay pot. What you're doing as a sport is just a form of warfare. And they're like, oh, people get horrible head injuries. But if you make it through the whole thing without getting hit by a clay pot, they really consider you a hero. I'm like, yeah. I don't need to be a hero. I'll drop a clay pot on someone. And then when you come out to America, when you have to be like, so when you do one of those skits, case guys didn't know I was participating in one of those clay pots. Brutal, yeah. let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. This ain't pretty. But I'm considered a hero in a rural town of Italy now. So great, great. You did it. You succeeded. Curious about what would you say out of the box? Skit. So when I say skit, I mean the times you got naked, the times you probably put on women's clothes. What would you sure. say was the most out-of-box one? The one that was my, definitely my favorite memory because it involves one of the other cast members and something that I didn't really know if I wanted to do at all was there's an episode where Danny Bonaducci and I are recreating a fight scene from like a Brawlers episode. And 
they wanted me to slap Danny and knock him out. Like he would pretend to fall down. And Danny and I had not met at that, so I didn't know him at all. I just knew him as, you know, someone who'd been famous my whole life. But what I also knew is that at that point in time, Danny was a celebrity professional fighter and wore a human tooth around his neck that he had knocked out of someone in these fights and kept and had encased in gold. So the producer said, you know, Danny's coming at the end of your taping. And what we want to do is we want you guys to recreate the fight, but then we want you to like slap him really hard and then he'll fall down and you can call him a bitch. You can be like, I kicked Danny Bonaduce's ass. And I'm like, wow, that's great. I'm amazed Danny agreed to that. And they were like, oh, we haven't asked Danny. We were hoping you would just do it because Danny's really cool. And so I said, so you want me to just slap, first of all, another human being I've never met, but you want me to slap Danny Bonaduce, who wears the human tooth of a guy he beat the crap out around his neck. So they were like, yeah, it'll be funny. Just go ahead and do it. So Danny got there. He was so sweet. He's so nice. We immediately hit it off. And he goes, can I talk to you in the hallway for the sec? Because I have an idea for something to do in this scene, but I don't know that the producers will go for it. I said, okay. We went in the hallway. He goes, I think you should slap the shit out of him. And I'll fall down. It'll be so funny. People won't see it coming. He goes, and then I'm going to get back up and I'm going to look like I'm about to hit you. And then I'm just going to grab you and start kissing you. And so I was like, okay, that's even more intense than what the producers wanted to do. But if you're down for it, I'm down for it. But then he was like, we need to rehearse the slap because I don't want it to be a fake slap. I want it to be a real slap. So I was kind of like lightly slapping him. And he literally was like, God damn it, slap me. And I just slapped him and like it clapped like thunder and i was like oh shit i'm in so much trouble now and he just came back and was like that was perfect and we went in there we didn't tell the producers what we were going to do they were like looking at me like this did you are we going to do it i said don't worry we got it. we did it in one take and when he grabbed me and started kissing me everyone in the room people dropped things people were just so shocked that danny bonaduce would make out with a man for a joke like to get the laugh and it went great it aired on the episode he had a radio show at that time and I called in and he got so much crap from his male viewers for kissing a gay dude and this is where again Danny's just a really cool guy and a fun guy he's a total straight guy but as soon as they were like I can't believe you kissed another dude he's like of course I can he goes well first of all if I'm gonna kiss another dude I'm gonna kiss a gay dude because they know how to kiss dudes he's like straight dudes don't know how to kiss other dudes he's like and Brad's an excellent kisser I would kiss Brad like he really was just like oh you think that's bad I'm gonna do it again Speaking of Danny, ain't he kind of, though, crazy? I mean... He was certainly not the craziest member of our cast, by far. But he is definitely a personality. I will say that much. I would say probably the most wacky person we had in the cast for a while was Gary Busey. That guy's a little cuckoo. And in fairness, Gary is a little cuckoo because he was in a car accident years ago that basically detached his head from his body. So, like, his brain is not completely inside of the skull anymore. You definitely, you, you can tell. Bless his heart. When you're talking Talking with him, you suddenly realize, like, oh, we're not even talking about the same thing anymore. You've started talking about peacocks and are like going over and licking the walls. Did you make any buddies though, besides Danny? And I didn't spend a lot of time with Gary, but uh, John Enos and I are still very good friends. I love John Enos. I loved him from when the time I was a little kid. He was a very famous model when I was a kid. 
and I had a crush on him when I was a kid. And then when he got on the show, he really loved my comedy and we started hanging out. That was one of the first times I became friends with like a childhood celebrity crush, which, you know, is kind of a wild full circle moment for someone who works in show business. And with the comedians, I'm still like Chuck Nice, Lonnie Love, Judy Gold and I have been friends for decades I know now. her. Oh, really? Yeah, Judy's I, great. I, how would you describe Judy Gold from your perspective? And my friend, she is funny, but well, you beat her to the tops. Like, you're she way is. funnier than Judy. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, God. If she sees this podcast, I'm going to get so many angry No, don't worry. I already just... told her. I told her. Right? <laughs> right? Oh, God. I said, hey, Judy, Brad's way funnier than you. And then she cussed me out. Well, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Um, well, thank you. That is a, it's not a competition. Comedy is not a competition. But if it was, I'm glad I'm winning. Uh, Judy is great. I knew Judy even before we did World's Dumbest. And we were the only openly gay cast members on the show. So we had a lot of camaraderie over that. We did a lot of scenes together. They would often pair us as like husband and wife or boyfriend girlfriend. Because that makes it particularly funny. Great. She's always been supportive of me. We're still good friends. I live in LA now. She's still in New York. I don't see a lot of them as much as I did when I lived in New York. But every now and then we run into each other and we all have great memories because that show ran for a really long time. I will say this about Duty. Even though that you're funnier, she's probably one of the best mothers I have. She's a wonderful mother. And a wonderful, like, to work with her. She's a wonderful comedian to other comedians. She's supportive, but she doesn't take bullshit. Like, I've seen comics being mean to comics in front of her and she'll shut that shit down. There's a plenty of people you can't trust in a business like show business and she's definitely someone you can trust. Right. Like, but if Judy tells you something... It's from her getting bullied. I do want to talk to you about more of the accepting. So I know we talked about being accepting human beings to autism and the LGBTQ community and race... But how can not just us, but the world out there, your buddies, your friend next door, your managers, how can the whole world be more of an accepting place? It's more important to do a hundred little things than it necessarily is to do one big thing. I think it's a lot of daily acts of small kindness and grace towards each other and towards ourselves and committing to other people as much as we want other people to commit to us. I always get a little bit annoyed when someone like, well, I don't want to learn something new. Such and such community, such and such group says that we all need to learn more about their life and their history and their sensitivities. But that's what we all want. Everybody wants to be understood by anybody else. Everybody wants to feel closer to one another than farther apart. And if that's what I want for me, I have to be willing to do it for other people. I have to be willing to learn about other people as much as I want other people to learn about me. I have to be willing to care about other people as much as I want other people to care about me. People forget that there's a reward in being not selfish. You actually feel really good for being less selfish. It's not this altruistic thing of like, oh, I'm just doing it for the betterment of other people. Doing things for the better of others is doing something good for yourself. Or if you think about it, for the money. Let me just talk about this here. Some celebrities that I have gotten to meet, I'm not trying to say all, but there's some celebrities out there who do meet and greets probably just for the money. And I understand that to a point. I think it's a great luxury, but shouldn't you also do it because you're kind to the fans and 
they helped you get there. It's maybe you shouldn't absolutely. And also, if you're going to do it even for the money, to. then respect that and care while you're there. If you're in show business, if you're a famous person or a public figure, if you're only at the thing for the money, and this isn't just the meet and greet, if you're only doing the TV show for the, if you're only doing the stage show, then respect the fact that you're doing it for money and do a good job and care about. It. Because if you care enough just about the money, you should care enough to not be horrible. I knew Carrie Fisher a little bit when she was alive. And she was Princess Leia. Now, she was herself not in any way really a sci-fi fan. She did the Star Wars movies when she was very young. They became this huge, giant thing. But obviously, she was and is a huge part of people's lives who loved those movies and loved that character. And she took it very seriously when she would do meet and greet because she was like, I am the keeper of Princess Leia. I'm the only one to ever take Princess Leia. The character didn't exist before I played it. It was written and then I was cast to play it. She's like, I'm a very important thing to people. That character is important to people. And if they want to wait in line to take a photo with me or get an autograph, she's like, that means a lot to them. And to her, it wasn't that Princess Princess Leia meant a lot to her. It was that how much Princess Leia meant to other people meant a lot to her. That she was a part of something that people cared so great. And I'm thankful for that, but I wish it was like they didn't come just to meet Princess Layla. I hope it would be come to meet Princess Layla and Carrie Fisher, the actual- Oh, well, sure, of course. But also, I mean, there's also, sometimes people can't separate the person from the work. Like sometimes people just can't separate the person from the work. And it's like, we do love what we do. There are people who love jokes of mine where I'm like, that is not the favorite joke I also, I don't necessarily have a favorite joke I ever wrote, because to a great extent, it's not important what my favorite joke is. The jokes are written and created to be performed to make other people laugh. So if a lot of other people laughed at that joke, that was the purpose of me writing that joke. And that's important. If you can get an audience rolling, you're in the ball game. And it's a beautiful feeling. Like, and again, it's something that you're doing for other people. I know what's coming when I'm talking, saying a joke. There's no surprises in my act to me. But it's a really great feeling and a beautiful thing to watch an audience be surprised by sunset. To make an audience laugh at something they haven't heard. But that's about giving something to them. And I get in return. I get that laughter. I get that love. And it's cool, I think, in the world that comedy exists because, one, you get the love with laughter and applause, but they get love and applause by walking out of that club with a good time. I think laughter is one of the most important human things we can do. I, I think laughter is an emotion. Laughter is a physical activity. It's an involuntary response in our body. I believe still to this day we are the only confirmed animal that laughs for humor like that makes this weird involuntary physical sound just because we're like amused by something or something tickles us i don't think anybody could live very long without having comedy in whatever way that comes whether it's stand-up comedy whether it's funny books whether it's funny conversations with friends and loved ones or strangers or seeing something funny happen on the street with a dog and you laugh the rest of the day thinking about it. Like, it doesn't matter to me what form laughter and comedy come in. I think it's, I don't think any human being could live very long with, without it. I, unless I think they, unless they're the miserable. Reasons. I find a lot of those people don't live long and they're not healthy because if there is no laughter, you're also probably someone who doesn't have a lot of hope. I've read so many accounts of, for instance, Holocaust survivors. There are always, from every concentration camp during 
the World War II Holocaust, there are endless stories of everyone trying to make each other laugh. Everyone trying to use humor, dark humor, sad humor. Everyone knew they were probably going to die, but they were still trying to find ways to laugh. Laughter is standing up to fear. Laughter is about taking the fangs out of pain. I often think of pain and fear as a snake or an animal with sharp teeth. And when you can make fun of pain and anger and make yourself laugh at it and maybe even others laugh at it, you've taken the teeth out of it. Now, I want to talk about something you stated in a comedy game when I did my research. So in a comedy game, you stated that it is hard sometimes to interact with heterosexuals. And I was wondering, was that like just a joke, like completely, or is it true sometimes? Yeah, and it depends on the person and the situation, but it's definitely just based on the joke of if you're part of a group, like as a gay person, I've heard my whole life plenty of straight people say things like well i just don't really understand gay people and we don't have anything um i don't know what they're talking about so i also then just like poking fun of it in reverse and being like i don't understand how straight people work like just kind of making fun of it because when you say it about the majority it becomes fun because people never stop to think like someone might say i don't really understand autism so i don't really think i could have a conversation with someone with autism well and then if you go did you ever think that people with autism probably think the same thing about you like <laughs> they don't think the way you think either idiot it might be just as nerve-wracking to have a conversation with you as you think it is for you to have a conversation with that right and i'll be honest they're right and wrong to an extent this is and this is just my view, so they're partially right. I don't understand, Brad, why you would like men. I mean, I like women. And all I can say is I feel the exact same way. I love women. Many of my best friends are women. I'm very close with my mother. I have never in my life found anything sexually attractive about a woman's body. My entire life, even as a little kid, the minute I hit puberty, I liked boys. I only liked boys. But again, so I get it. Also, like I say to people all the time, you don't have to personally relate to someone's experiences or life. You don't have to have the same life as someone to be kind to them and to be their friend like you are you are sexually attracted to women i am not but also regardless neither of us will ever know what it's like to be a woman we will never understand what it's like to carry a baby in our stomach to menstruate to experience misogyny but it, that doesn't mean we can't love women in our ways and support them and be yeah, friends and with i was them. gonna say even though that we can't you know understand each other sexually why who says we can't both like elvis everybody doesn't have to like the same thing to get along <laughs> Right. The I, world. Think kind of, I think people are like, no, you have to like this. And well, exactly. And it, and it goes back to, I think it's because uh, pr primarily far too many people think I will prove that what I like is worth liking if you like it too. So I hate when somebody is like, I love, I mean, you said Elvis, so I love Elvis. And I'll be like, okay, I've never been that big into Elvis. And then the person gets violently mad. They're just, what are you kidding me? He's the king of rock and roll. And I'm like, great. I didn't say you can't love Elvis. I just said I don't have any particular feelings about Elvis. And you screaming at me about it or storming out of the room is also not going to make me give a shit about Elvis more. It's just going to make me feel like, I guess, me and that guy can't hang out. Because if I don't like everything he likes, we're not allowed to be friends. And that's not about Elvis. That's about that dude. But please tell me like Elvis a little bit. <laughs> I can tell you I performed at Graceland and I met Priscilla Presley. But all I'll say is there's never been an Elvis song on in my iTunes. And it's there's a, over 100,000 100, okay. songs. That's not, hey, iTunes. I'm not going to be mad at you for that. But 
I'm curious. You said you had a lot of family members with autism. Do you have to teach them that? Because I know that's one of the issues with autism knowing me because I thought at a point in my life, all right, this guy has to like professional wrestling or he's out the door. That's not uncommon and that's not an autism specific trait. I mean, there's plenty of people who don't want to talk to people who aren't of their own religion. There's plenty of Democrats who don't want to talk to Republicans or Republicans who don't want to talk to Democrats. I know people who have gotten into knockdown drag out screaming matches over which car brand is the best car brand. I mean, again, as if that matters at all, buy and drive whatever car you want to buy and drive. <laughs> Nobody cares and no one should care. If you like your car, good for you. I would say like in my own family, the people that I know, my family and friends who are on the spectrum, particularly my family, the members of my family who are on the spectrum are older than me. They're most of them are of my mother and father's generation. And so also autism and the spectrum and understanding it is a very modern thing to them. That was not something in the 1950s and 60s. In the 1950s and 60s, there was practically no mental health. For anybody. It was not talked about. Things that we now socially and empathetically accept universally of all of us. Things like depression, things like anxiety. These were skeletons in the closet when my parents and my aunts and my uncles were kids and young adults. I also think, it, like, I've noticed it's very different knowing friends who have autism who are my age or younger because they've grown up in a world where it is a conversation. Even though it's not always a perfect conversation, you know, and the conversation has to evolve and everyone's knowledge evolves over time, at least it's a conversation. Whereas relatives I have in their 60s, it's only in the last 20 years that they've even become aware of that this is what they're a part of. That this explains so much about how they see the world and process the world. It has contributed to their difficulties and their successes. Let me ask you this then, and you don't have to name names. I don't, we'll keep their name out of privacy, out of respect, but could you like take a, like I call an autism struggle, like that maybe it's a meltdown, anger issues, and tell me like how you either A, help them out through it, or B, taught them something about, all right, this is why we can't punch walls. The interesting thing is on my mother's side of the family, the people who usually punch the walls are not the people on the spectrum. They're just Irish and Italian, and they're very fiery, and they have no control over their emotions, <laughs> and it has nothing to do with autism. One thing I can say is, and particularly in one particular relationship in my family where the person is on the spectrum, but very high functioning, but their whole life faced a lot of incidents, incidences in personal and professional environments where people suddenly realize they really are not processing the situation, language, facial expressions, the same way everybody else. They're taking a figurative saying very literally. Like I remember one case where the person called me after a business meeting and and said, everybody started yelling, and I was the only one who just kind of got quiet, and, got, and she gets very analytical about things. One of her business partners said to her afterwards, you're so good at kind of not starting to yell when other people yell. Like, she just kind of gets shut down. And he said, you know, oh, well, I wear my heart on my sleeve, so I get very emotional about these things. And she called me, and she was like, what does he mean he wears his heart on his sleeve? Like, he means his heart is on the outside? And I was like, oh, no, like, that's a figure of speech. What he means is he gets very passionate and emotional. And she was like, well, why wouldn't he just say passionate and emotional? A lot of her things display themselves in people will misinterpret. Like she does a lot of questioning. Everything has to be like, she'll do a lot of like, what time did your flight land? And then what, and 
then you got your bag. And then what time did you go to the car? And then you got to the hotel and like, are there two beds or one bed in the hotel? Now to someone who doesn't have experience just with that kind of brain, it starts to feel like the person is interrogating. <laughs> like you start to be like, is this a police investigation? But if you understand that this is that person trying to get information from you because they love you and they want to hear about your day, but they're not necessarily asking about it in, in a manner that you expect to talk or act or say. What's been important to me is to learn, and this isn't just about people on the spectrum, this is about everybody. Everyone expresses themselves differently. You have to try to meet them where they are. If someone's not good with communicating feelings or emotions, you can't expect them to change their whole personality just because you would like them to express their feelings in a different way. Not a better way, just a different way. I have relatives who have problems with physical intimacy. Touch can be an issue for some of them. Hugging, touch, it's very awkward for them. It can kind of it can be anxiety causing, it can flood them. But so for, for someone who loves them, uh, who doesn't feel that way, you, loving them means accepting the fact that this person doesn't want to hug you every minute of the day. And it doesn't mean that they don't love you. And it doesn't mean that they don't want to feel and be close to you. But being and feeling close to you doesn't have to involve hugging and cuddling and touching and pawing each other. I at myself though, because that's the complete opposite. I mean, you would think with me, I would come like, don't you dare touch me, my skin crawls, but I'm the opposite. I'm like, stretch it out, man. Everyone is unique. Oh yeah, and there's and another example with that. I mean, look at this. I'm doing a podcast for a living. You're a comedian. Two different things. Exactly. And what a boring world it would be if people only spent time with and got close with and talked with people who were somehow exactly like that. What a boring, boring life that That'd be very sad. Imagine just sitting in a room where everybody looks like you, acts like you, talks like you, walks like you, eats everything you eat at the same time, likes everything you like in the same, like, what's the point? Yeah, you know what's coming next. I'd rather not know what's coming next. That's the exciting part of life, is finding out that other people like things you don't like, and maybe finding out that you like something you never knew about, only because someone who already liked it introduced you to it. The only way to find out about new music and new books and new movies is to talk to other people and have someone say, have you seen this movie? Oh, you should go see this movie. I really liked it. Maybe you Oh, that reminds it. me of something. This is what I do a lot. So um, th there's this new app. It's called Send It. And a lot of the okay. things I do is um, sometimes because I want to hear new music is I'll put on there, drop a song and I'll rate it. And, I, and I'm open to any song like rock country. And I'm like, Ooh, okay, let's go do it. I'll literally go online, YouTube it and I'll rate it. I'll, and I'll tell my awesome kids like, all right, this is what was good. It sucked completely. Thank you. Or it was really good, man. I like these types. You know, right. I like, I'm a firm believer too, when it comes to art and any form, when someone goes like, Oh, well, I just like, I hate thrillers or I hate cop stuff or I hate rock and roll or I hate country music or I hate pop music. Anytime somebody says that like unilaterally, I'm always like, I guarantee you if I sat down with them and they were open to it within 10 songs, I could find one song in that genre. They say they hate that they actually go, Oh, I really like that song. What song is that? Who sings that? Who wrote that? I like that song. It's like, okay, so now you like country music. You don't have to like all of it. Nobody likes all of it. You, you know, you asked me for two 
two of my favorite songs and I gave you Stevie Nicks song. I have a Stevie Nicks lyric tattooed on my arm. She is by far my favorite musical artist, which is saying something because I have thousands of artists in my iTunes and I listen to music constantly. But Stevie Nicks has absolutely written some songs that I think are absolute crap. There's a lot of Elvis songs I think are crap. I'll name one of them. <laughs> Can't afford sure. love. I've written a lot of jokes that in retrospect I think are crap or that the audience thought were crap. Nobody does everything perfectly for everybody all the time. Nobody can be everything to everybody all the time. No one's God. No one's Mother Nature. Even if you do believe in God, most people are like, well, sometimes God definitely does some things that people don't like. Except me, though. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm messing. <laughs> I think people get way too obsessed with absolutes. I hate all of this, or I love everything. Stop making everything so definite. Just experience life. When you hear a song you like, listen to it and enjoy it. It doesn't matter if it's country or rock and roll. Or I've watched people debate passionately and angrily whether a song is technically a Christmas song or not a Christmas song. It's a good song. If you song, both like the fucking matters. song, if you both like the song and you both like listening to it in November and December in particular, then just goddamn listen to the song. People are getting shot in the street and you're worried about if Dolly Parton's Hard Candy Christmas is or isn't a Christmas song? Pick a better thing to care about, kids. Literally. Like, how about you just like the song and no one needs to get in a fight at a cocktail party about whether a song belongs to Christmas. We know per certain things belong to Christmas. I mean, you can't argue with the Christmas tree and you can't argue with Santa Claus. If you argue with that, you're kind of a bozo. And That's also, but again, so Christmas around the world is different. We would also say that the reindeer have to go with Christmas. Fun fact, in Australia, Santa doesn't have reindeer. Santa has six white kangaroos who bring him around Australia. And you want to know why? Because there's no reindeer in Australia and December in Australia is summer. Fair enough, but it's my summer in the is, Southern Hemisphere. It, it if deer are supposed to fly, how do they get Santa around? Do they just hop and carry the sled? We didn't even put wings on them. It's bad mythology to begin with. You didn't just make them unicorns with wings. You just made them like small moose. But again, everything is whatever it is to other people. I don't think the Mona Lisa is a particularly impressive painting. It's a very well done painting. It's made by an artist who I think is an absolute genius. But I do not consider that painting personally anywhere near his most impressive work of art. Art is about what you get from it. And if you don't get anything from it, you're allowed to just say, ah, not my cup of tea and move on. You don't have to say, oh, that thing's a piece of shit. Somebody should burn that painting because I don't think it's the prettiest painting in the world. That's true about everything. That's true about people. Tr there's a trillion people on the planet. We're not all going to be friends. We're not all going to see eye to eye on it. We're going to have differences and that's okay. The key is not to torture each other by going, oh, that person and I don't get along. Well, now we're enemies. Now, every time I see them, I'm going to go out. Why? What did either of you do to each other other than not be close, not have a reason to be friends? Everyone who's not your friend doesn't have to be your enemy. You're allowed to just not care about something. <laughs> now, folks, we'll be right back right here and add from the Doug Flutie Jr. Autism Foundation. So let's hear from them. At the Doug Flutie Autism Foundation in Massachusetts, people are receiving hope. 
The organization was established in 1998 by Doug Flutie, former quarterback for Boston College and the NFL, and his wife, Lori, in the memory of their son, Dougie, who was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. The goal of the Flutie Foundation is to improve the quality of life for those with autism and their families. The biggest action they like to do is give grants and host their annual Stars on the Spectrum golf event. Our goal is to offer chances for physical and social activity outside of work or school, a path for education or employment during the day, and the resources needed to always feel safe, supported, and informed, the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation says. Make sure to visit them on their website, www.flutiefoundation.org. That's www.flutiefoundation.org. Or follow them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even YouTube to see all the stars they have to offer. And you never know, you might be able to meet one of their stars if you are so kind and they allow you to do so. Finally, if this was a testimony, this would be my testimony for the Doug Jr. Autism Foundation. All right, folks, we're back. You might meet Doug Flutie, you never know. Now, Brian, do you want to talk to you more about your comedy? When did you see that comedy was for you instead of acting and music? I went to college for theater. I thought I was going to be an actor and a and a music theater actor my whole life I from the time I was 12 years old never thought about anything else truly never thought about stand-up comedy never thought about television or film or moving to Hollywood and then I got out of college and I performed uh, for a couple of years touring in theater productions and really hated it so I suddenly realized this thing I dedicated my whole life to since I was a little kid was something I did not actually want do so in my early 20s i was waiting tables and bartending in new york city trying to wait for inspiration on what the next part of my life would be what would i do with my life and friends time and time again were telling me you know you should really try stand-up comedy you're really funny you should really try stand-up comedy and it just never occurred to me long story short eventually after a couple years of friends hounding me to try it i decided to give it a try one night the very first time i got up on stage i immediately loved it and i got a couple laughs like i didn't totally Totally suck at it. The guy who produced that show said, you're funny. That was your first time on stage as a comedian. You're come back every weekend, come and see the show for free. And anytime somebody cancels, I'll put you up so that you can get some experience. And that was kind of how it began. And then from that point on, comedy was my only focus. I now do many other things. I've written for TV shows and live theater, and I've written pieces for the West End in London and, and other countries. But stand-up comedy is still my first love and still my primary job after all these years it literally just kind of happened it was the last thing i tried in show business when it worked and i really loved it and it seemed to fit me i just stuck with it well, what got you in acting and music and at your early age because you said you knew it was very early but what was it about acting was it just the fact there was suspense i mean what was it about acting the stories are that from the time i was a toddler i was always performing i was always trying to get people to laugh and pay attention to me from kindergarten i was the lead in every school play I got the solo in every choir thing. I was just a person who was kind of meant to be on the stage. I also luckily had a family who was very supportive of that. My father always dreamed of being a rock star and he's a great drummer. And so growing up, like my dad was always in bands, not professionally, but it was his full-time hobby and played on the weekends and bars and at festivals. Both of my grandmothers, I'm, I'm very close with both of my grandmothers. One passed away many years ago, one is still alive. And they both loved the theater. So they both very much much supported me and, and you used to bring me to shows, buy me plays and have me watch old plays on TV. So just had a family that was very supportive of that. It seemed I was a creative person in general. They tried to amplify that and uplift me in that. 
as much as they can. Yeah, you're talking about art. I mean, we can go back in that for a minute because you're talking about yeah. art being a creative side, I feel like. That's what it is. I mean, no matter what the art, though, is, it doesn't have to be pen and paper. It can be podcast. Yeah. Comedy. I mean, everything that is creative is art and everything that is subjective. Not everybody is going to laugh at the same thing. Not everybody is going to like the same book. Not everyone. But that's also what makes it art. Art is in the eye of the beholder. I'm going to ask you this first. I'm going to kind of give you my take on it. How would you describe your comedy style? Now, in my opinion, this is kind of the English nerd coming out of me. I'm a big, I hate math, love English. Same. Hate math. I still count on my fingers. Oh, me too. I'd be like, uh, E5. Oh, shoot. Well, got to start over now. But, yeah, uh, I'm t- and my mother's an accountant. She is the best at math in the whole wide world. And I'm the worst at math in the whole wide world. Probably during math homework, you're like, no, it goes here. Oh, she used to get so mad at me when she was teaching me multiplication tables. She used to get so frustrated because she was like, you're not a dumb kid. Why is math the only thing you can't get? She'll literally see me counting on my fingers and she's like, you are about to be 45 years old. Why can you not count? Why can't you take six out of 11? I'm like, I can. I just need my fingers or my phone. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? I was talking about the English geek here. I think you add a lot of personification to your humor. So there was another episode of Rolls Dumbest where you said this joke and quote, if Road Rage ends in swimmer's ear, that'd be phenomenal. Goat to effects. I mean, that's your comedy style. Is there anything you want to add on to that? That's very true. I love alliteration. I love playing with words. There are definitely comedians who love the words first and then the ideas of the jokes come. Like, I have definitely written jokes. Like, big, big, long jokes that, like, are have been significant parts of my act over the year that have started with me just really loving the funny sound of a combination of words. And then I build a joke around that. Or the idea of the illogical thing of putting two words together that don't make sense but are funny when they sound. And like you said earlier, my comedy is always R-rated. I've always been classified as an adult comedian, which I'm totally fine with. I have no interest in 12-year-olds thinking I'm funny, even though many do. (laughs) My live act in person is very bawdy and naughty. But I also like playing with that because I also think comedy is good at tearing down stereotypes and tearing down boundaries and walls. I don't understand why sex is taboo when sex is a natural thing that all human beings do. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are. Sex is something you think about. It's something you have when you can. When you don't have it, you think about the next time you're going to have it. Everybody does. Every age, every race, every gender, every sexuality. So why is it so ooh when people talk about it? I like talking about things. People oh, me too. Hands about. down. I mean, I'm the guy who's going to be like, oh, you just ripped your pants? That's the person you want. I have watched people been at lunch and told a friend like oh you have spinach in your teeth and they're like thank you so much and then our other friends are like oh my god I noticed that 20 minutes ago but I was embarrassed and didn't want to tell you and it's like so you let me sit here with spinach in my teeth for 20 minutes like an idiot and you're my friend we're at lunch together why were you embarrassed to tell me I have spinach in my teeth like why is that embarrassing but people get embarrassed and weird about the strangest thing. They really do sometimes. I Sometimes I wonder why we can't talk about some of these dumb things alive. Like, we obviously want to mock certain politics. Like, that's right. something I will not cross the line yeah. on this podcast. There are three things I don't like to talk because I know it will get 
push, and it's just out of respect, really. Sex, politics, and religion. Those are the three I don't try to bring on here. You think you want to know about it? You just want to know about the education side of autism. But it kind of gets to my next question. Do you have a line that you will not cross? Like, maybe joke about sex, but you won't joke about the Holocaust. I won't joke about the Holocaust, but I have used the Holocaust as a setup to a joke that is not about the Holocaust at least once before. Because there's an interesting thing when people say, like, are there things you won't joke about? Because are we talking about... Because when people say that, they often mean making fun of something. So that's there's a difference right between... There. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. There are definitely things I won't make fun of, but there is no topic I won't talk about and use in comedy. There's a difference between a subject and a target in comedy. The target is different than a subject. So for instance, there's many people who have done comedy about cancer, their own cancer experience, having cancer themselves. They're not making fun and belittling people who have cancer. They're making jokes and observations about all the crazy weird things that happen around having cancer. They're not pretending cancer isn't bad and fatal and painful, that we're not all scared of it, but they're still talking about it in comedy, but they're not mocking people with cancer. But I will say one subject in general, one large subject I don't deal with in my comedy, and it's only because I don't think I can do it well, is politics. And that is because I have always taken politics very seriously. I love a good political comedian. I love John Oliver. I love George Carlin when he was alive. I have great respect for really good political comedians. I just find I can't write good political comedy because I take it too seriously. So it ends up not being funny. It just ends up me being very passionate and angry on stage, telling people what I think is right and wrong about the world. And that's not stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy has to be funny. It can educate, it can enlighten, it can offend, it can help, it can hurt, but it has to always come from the point of view of your goal was to be funny. My problem with politics now is, look, I get that sometimes you have higher power, but there comes a point where it's important to mention that this politician had a heart attack, but not mention that, oh, breaking news, Joe Biden broke up with his girlfriend. Like, it's drama. That's what I want to avoid, the political drama. I think all comedians and all artists and all people should not all things have the same weight and importance to them. So like if I write a bad joke about food shopping, the worst that's going to happen is no one's going to laugh. And then they're going to go, oh, well, that was annoying. We didn't laugh at that joke. But if I write a bad joke about the Holocaust or AIDS or gun violence or the fact that the number one cause of death of people in America 18 years and younger is being shot to death, a lot of people will feel a lot stronger about that bad joke. And that is because that shit means a lot more than a bad joke about food shop. It absolutely matters what your subject matter is. So if you're going to write a joke that involves destruction, pain, oppression, religion, rape, you better make sure that it is the best goddamn joke that anyone has ever written in their entire life. Because if it is, it might actually make people laugh at a really painful thing. It might make someone who's experienced that thing laugh and let go of some of that pressure on them. But if it's not the funniest, most brilliant writing about that horrible subject matter, you're probably going to do more harm than good. Have you ever joked about autism before? Or... Comedy is called punching down. You don't punch down. 
You don't make fun of somebody else's. You can make fun of your own struggle. I have talked on stage before about there's a Netflix series that they filmed in Australia. They did two seasons of it called Love on the Spectrum. It was a dating show for people with autism. And I don't know if you saw it, but I have made so many people who are not on the autism spectrum watch that show. One, because I think it was a reasonably well done show, especially within the first few episodes, found a way to be very respectful. And it's a dating reality show. And as someone who's worked in television, I can tell you those shows are horrible all the time. Like it is horrible to be on a reality show. You are treated terribly. You're put in really weird, stressful situations for no reason to create drama. So I had a lot of fear they were gonna do that to people with autism, which was gonna be even worse because people with autism already can get stressed out by the non-autistic world on their own. They don't need a reality show to put that pressure on them. But what I found was everyone who's not on the autism spectrum who I've had watched that show suddenly realized how much similar they are to autistic people then they are different because what we all suddenly realized was dating is a really weird hard thing that's always awkward in the beginning where everybody's nervous no one knows exactly what to say or do but because many people with autism and certainly the ones on this show because they were at a point where they could be verbal and be on camera they were able to be so honest and eloquent with how they felt every point along the way. And they were able to be honest about what they were looking for in a partner because there's been so many dating shows in the world where people are fake. In my experience, people with autism in the best way possible are not really good at faking being a person. And there are a lot of people who are not on the autistic spectrum who, who can fake being the nicest life. person alive. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking about faking like, the dating game, not the dating, but with dating. Oh my gosh, here's some more stuff to make fun of for you or more material. There was a serial killer who used the dating game as like an advance. I can't yeah. remember. Rodney's something. I can't remember his yeah, last yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. And listen, dating shows and things like that and dating apps, it's a nightmare. I don't know anyone who's like, oh, dating apps are great or going on blind dates is great. It's all terrible. And I made so many people watch it so I would talk on stage and be like, guys, I think the only people who might be good at dating are people with autism. Because I what I learned... Right. <laughs> More what I learned from this show is if you go on a date with an autistic person and you're like, I think he might be a little nervous right now, he will say, I'm a little nervous right now. If you go on a date with someone not with autism and you go, what's wrong? It seems like you're nervous. They'll go, I'm not nervous. Shut up. Spend the rest of the time being weird. And you're like, why wouldn't they just say they're nervous? I'm nervous too. And I'm like, right. People with autism will actually just say what they think and feel. Yeah. And the rest of us spend our whole life saying all we want is people to say what they really think and feel to us. And then we also simultaneously spend our entire lives avoiding saying what we really think or feel to people or getting mad when people actually say what they think or feel to. Yeah, now you also got to appear on The Last Comic Standing. So how'd you get to appear on The Last Comic Standing? The easiest thing ever, I did not have to audition. I was already a well-established comedian at that point, and the season I was on, Wanda Sykes was the executive producer and the host and one of the judges. Her and her production partner, Paige Hurwitz, they run Push and Productions, have been friends of mine for many, many years. And I had actually just, two different TV gigs had just ended for me that year. Writing Job and World's Dumbest had just ended within the same 12 months. So I was kind of light on work. 
and I was around, Paige came up to me in a gay bar that we both frequent at a comedy show and said, I don't really know if you'd want to do it. I don't know if you want to do reality competition TV, but we would love you to be on Last Comic Stand. And we think it would be a great showcase for you. So I said yes. And then two months later, we were in the studio filming it. And it was a great experience. I got to work with a lot of friends. The nice thing was many seasons of Last Comic Standing, it was almost entirely amateur comedians, people who weren't doing it for like a living living yet or just our season was almost entirely people who were full-time professional comedians and most of us for many years. So it was kind of like a reunion, like a high school reunion, but for comedians, we got to all spend a couple weeks hanging out on and off camera. But it was a lot of fun. You also got to be a co-host for the Series XM Morning Jolt with Larry Flick. So how did you get to be a co-host with Larry Flick? That was long before actually I even did True TV. I was a very young stand-up comedian. And he had a full-time co-host at that time named Keith Price, who was also a stand-up comedian and ran a weekly comedy show at a bar in New York City. And I used to perform in it regularly. Larry and Keith would do a segment where they would invite uh, young, new LGBTQ comedians in to do like five minutes of material to just kind of showcase them. And I came in and Larry liked me. And then I made a reference to Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac. His eyes lit up because it turned out that he is also a massive Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac fan. So we deeply connected on our love of Stevie and Fleetwood Mac. And then after that segment, we went to lunch and he said, you're young, you need more experience. Why don't you come in once a week and sit for the entire three hour show and be a guest co-host every Wednesday. And then I did that for, I think, like five years. And I got to meet hundreds of stars, which was an amazing education on show business and how people behave, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I met John Bon Jovi, Brett Michaels, Sting, Madonna, Stevie Nicks. He got me a private audience with Stevie Nicks, which was one of my favorite memories of my entire career. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. TV stars, rock stars, musicians, actors, directors. I mean, everybody. Lady Gaga, like right when her album came out and then Lady Gaga many more times as she became more and more famous. And he is a master interviewer and a real lover of art and show business. So it was also a really wonderful education, like as a fan in how to love things and how to treat other artists. What'd you learn? I learned learned that uh, unless you are dead broke and only doing it because you desperately need the money, you should really find a way to be happy, to be in the room and be at the interview or be on set or be at the club or be at your job because everybody else in the world would love to have your job. And that doesn't mean our jobs are not hard and painful and require a lot of sacrifice. People who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars perform in front of audiences of 20 and 30,000 people. And some of them, they would have rather shit in both hands and clapped than been, been told their album is good and have a lovely interview. And others walked in excited to be there, really excited to talk about their new project, thrilled that they got to do what they love for a living. And what I learned is you'll always be tired. You'll always have to do an interview where at some point where you're hungover, where you just got off a plane after 18 hours, where you, you barely have a voice, you've been performing nonstop. You can still treat people 
people with kindness. You can still prevent yourself from being an asshole to everybody. You get to choose what kind of famous person you are. It does not matter what has happened to you. It does not matter where you are in your career. It does not matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're on top or on bottom or on top again. And too many people choose being an asshole and then justify it because yeah, because at the end of the day, you can walk through the door famous. You can't exit the door through famousy. But the thing is, so you can't. <laughs> you can stop releasing albums and you can stop going to interviews. If you're ch if a paparazzi is chasing a famous person with their kid down the street when they're walking their kids to the street, you should be mad at that. Like as a famous person and just as a parent, as a person. But it's just, to me, it's an odd flat. If you're like, I'm tired of being on a press tour for my big new album and tour. Well, then why did you make the album and why are you going on tour? If you don't want to do it, take your $200 million and go home. But my point, though, is, no, I don't think you can, though, because they'll still know your name at the end of the day. They'll still know, like, oh, they'll, you'll still get talked about, maybe not from tours and Oh, stuff. sure, but you don't care if you're not paying attention. Tina Turner stopped performing and she lives in Europe. Like, Tina Turner just lives her life. and But has said, because she doesn't want to perform anymore and she doesn't want to do interviews. And she was like, when I no longer, when it was no longer fun and enjoyable instead of being mad at the fact i was still doing it i just stopped doing it because you're in the privileged position of having enough money that you don't need to work anymore. you were on a lot of shows so what were some of the shows you appeared on through e vh1 mtv and logo honestly don't even remember them. we'd have to look at my resume <laughs> I have a brain that reboots very quickly. It's like a goldfish's brain. I write a lot of material. And so I write material, I get it good, I use it for a while, and then I throw it out and start over again. I oftentimes find people are like, oh, remember when you did this show or you performed here? And I'm like, no, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> but I've done a ton of stuff for all those networks over the years. I, I mean, I've done game shows, I've done reality shows, I've done advice shows, I've done talking head shows like World's Dumbest. I was a staff writer at E! for many years for a bunch of different shows they had there. I've written award shows. I've written live theater shows. I've written musicians touring shows, all of their banter. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. Uh, I consider myself a lazy workaholic because I like to procrastinate. Me too. My, uh, but yeah, I've me, done... I do it when it's a sign or right when it's due because I can't do it in the middle. I would get like, oh. Exactly. God, 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 Same God. way. Same way. I got to wait until it's like two hours before it's due and then I can write the entire script down to the wire and then send it in. You were like-minded there, buddy. Now, you also have worked with a lot of comedians. So out of all the comedians you have worked with, who is your favorite to work with and why? My favorite comedian to work with is Julie Gold. Julie Goldman was on Logo's Big Gay Sketch Show. She's done a million guest appearances on a million show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. She was on Bravo's The People's Couch for all of its seasons. She also has a great podcast called Dumb Gay Politics with Brandy Howard, her writing partner. Um, they're both dear friends, but Julie Goldman is a comedian who, when we met, we just immediately connected. We've toured together, which is rare for both of us. I don't normally like intentionally book show dates where I split the bill with other comics and she's the same, but we just genuinely love spending time together so much. We make each other laugh so much. And we have very similar senses of humor. So I also think from a show point of view, we feel our shows are very strong together because it's like having two versions of the same person. People have thought that we're brother and sister before because we get along so well and our comedy is 
sisters. Maybe you both are sorority sisters. We could start our own sorority. Exactly. <laughs> now, I do know that you also work with Atlantis Events and RSVP Vacations. So for people that do not know, can you tell us what Atlantis Events and RSVP Vacations is? They are all LGBTQ charter cruises and resorts. So basically what happens is these companies will buy out an entire cruise ship for an entire cruise and only sell it to the LGBTQ community. And we bring on all our own entertainment and all our own stuff. We turn the pool deck into a multi-million dollar nightclub with video walls and lasers, and international DJs. And then on the main stage, you have people like me, Patti Lapone, Deborah Cox, Erotic, Todrick Hall, you know, people from all different kinds of artistic disciplines. And they are just some of the greatest in the world. Because of Atlantis and RSVP, I have been able to travel to and perform in over 70 countries countries on six months um it, that's so impressive pretty, man yeah, you're talking to someone who's only been to oklahoma 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 <laughs> is oklahoma in middle earth is that the rural area the orcs are from <laughs> that was called oklahoma oklahoma now everybody anyway i've been to oklahoma orlando <laughs> canada and dc and that's all been like three months not short time span you with now i am curious about this is it possible so because i am an lgbtqa that's an like, ally for the LGBT ally, yes, you are an ally. Yep. So, is it possible you could get me in touch with someone from the Atlantis events and RSVP vacations for collaborative work? I love to, you know, work with them. I would. Love I can make an introduction. I can't guarantee anything, but I can certainly make an introduction. Yeah, like just make an introduction with, "Hey, this is Sam from Autism Rocks and Rolls. He runs podcasts, Autism Rocks Rolls, and he's an LGBTQA and love to do some." Absolutely. Work. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Now you are doing some shows in the future. I saw. So why don't you tell us some of the shows you're doing? And this writer's strike I heard uh, about. Oh, let's see. <laughs> right now, I'm not doing a lot because of the writer's strike. So right now, I'm mostly just getting my steps in every day by marching in solidarity with my friends and, and working on the future. But coming up very soon, I am going to Europe for the summer to perform for Atlantis events. So I will be all over Europe with Atlantis from July through the beginning of September. And there's also some Pride events coming up in my calendar later this year. I'm actually currently working on a new theater show that will premiere here in Los Angeles, probably in November or December. And then we will bring it to New York. If people want to ever find out about what's going on with me, they can just follow me on Facebook and Instagram or head over to my I try to keep it all updated. As I'll put both of your Facebook and your website in the show notes too. Once awesome. I Thank released you. episode. Now we got to talk about a couple stories I've heard through interviews. So I call this first one, the first grade report card story. So apparently what the base of the story is the teacher gave you the report card and it was not the best, but in the comment section, the teacher said he's destined for greatness. I could see him in the spotlight or something like that. She said, I fully expect to see the name Brad Lokley up in light someday. And then she wrote my name and actually drew like a little drawing of Marquee outside of a theater and did like stars, like light bulbs all the way around it as if like presenting Brad Lokley at this theater. And so I can't even remember the name of that teacher. I only went to that school for two years and then we moved, but she definitely was a good teacher who had a keen eye because by the time I was in 30, my name was up in lights on Marquee's. You should have walked out with that report card too, though, when you went out. There. I know, right? Yeah. But she also was like, yeah, he's too talkative in class and he's not very good at nap time because he's always trying to talk to the other students during nap time. I remember that report cards and my mother, definitely. My mother was like, when I saw that report card, I was like, okay, even the teachers see what we all see, which is that this kid's going to go into show business. 
Yeah, and I saw this story in an interview, but it kind of like stopped right in the middle of it. So I caught, apparently it's in your family, the legendary My Little Pony story. Oh, God. Yeah, my 30th birthday card. So, God, where is it? Is it on my desk? God, it'd be, no, I won't be able to find it now. I'm sitting at my writing desk right now, and I'm like, God, the card has to be somewhere around here I can actually show it to you. For my 30th birthday, even though my mother is an account, she has a very sharp sense of humor. She got me a My Little Pony birthday card that said your three on the front so she just drew a giant black zero next to the three to make it your 30 and then on the inside she said do you remember when you really were about three and you wanted a my little pony doll so bad you cried and screamed in toys r us until we bought it for you and then on the drive home your father cried and screamed the whole way because we just bought his only son a my little pony doll happy birthday anyway love mom and then on the other side, my father wrote, Hey, lady, congratulations on making it to 30 without herpes. I won that bet. Your mother owes me $50. I love your family already. Guys, to which I responded, who said I don't have herpes? <laughs> That's great right so there. Yeah, both my parents have distinct senses of humor. I'm not the black sheep. My family has a lot of people. Oh, I can already tell that. So I, that's what like go with like spin day because the day I laugh, like, oh God, my stomach hurts from laughing too much. <laughs> now you've said you did grow up in kind of a redneck area. Mm -hmm. Even though you are gay, do you think there's some redneck characteristics you have? There definitely are. There's an old saying, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. And even though I never wanted to grow up in the country, when I'm around people who only ever grew up in cities, I definitely have skills and traits and knowledge and behaviors that are definitely not city. Like, I'm really good on a four-wheeler. I have a weakness for Jägermeister, which is such a rural dude thing to drink. Like, in, in Los Angeles and New York City, nobody drinks Jäger. But when I go and do gigs on the road, people are like, Jäger, Jäger! Let's see. I know how to build a bonfire. I can build a very good bonfire and a good camping fire. I know how to camp and I know how to fly fish. If you handed me a fly rod next to a river, I'd be able to get right back into it within a few minutes. You just brought Summit with you. And hey, there's no problem bringing a little redneck in anyone, right? Yeah, no, there's lots of fun shit about rednecks. There really is. Now, it seemed like, if I'm wrong, please correct me, your dad was the hardest. <laughs> like, he didn't seem like he accepted it at first. He did eventually, but not at first. I would say it was just the hardest for him because he was very worried about me and he didn't understand it. Like, again, that goes back to that whole idea of it was just very hard for my dad to wrap his head around the fact that his son was going to date other men. And so that was definitely a struggle for him. But one thing I'll give him a lot of credit for is he never said, if you're not straight, you're not my son. He never threatened me. He, and, and not only that, like he never did anything other than love. He openly admitted that he struggled with it and he didn't always know what to say or do all the time if shit came up about my sexuality. But there was never a time where I thought that that he loved me less. Right, Once it's like that Law & Order scene. They were going through this. Detective Elliot and Detective Benz were at this house, and this woman was changing into a guy. And the father was just, you know, didn't understand. But Elliot said, and I quote, it would be hard for me to understand, granted, but it wouldn't change my love for him. And the truth is, also as I grew up and I moved away and I met a lot more gay people, so many LGBTQ people have families who kick them out and they're homeless at 14 and 16. Had friends who, when they came out to their parents, their parents pulled a gun on them and said, get 
out of my house and if I ever see you again, I'll shoot. When I know that that's going on in the world, I feel tremendously blessed to have had the parents I have. Because again, you can't choose your family. When you're 14 or 15 or 16 years old, you can't really take care of yourself in this world. You need people around you. You need family. You need protectors. And my parents were pretty great. I think you can if you had to, but you have to mature real quickly. Well, but also, like, at 14, you can't legally get a job. How are you going to pay rent? Fair <laughs> enough. I'll give you that. And real quick, I saw this on another interview. Didn't your dad offer you up to get out of a ticket? That is a joke, but it is based not too loosely on a real story. My father and I were drinking at a bonfire on our property in upstate New York. This was when I was in, I think, college. And we got really drunk, and we decided to go out for a joyride on the golf cart. It turns out we had gone off the neighborhood paths, and we were now driving the wrong way with no headlights on down a public road in a golf cart at like one o'clock in the morning. So, and then of course, as luck would have it, a police car came up behind us and the sirens went on and we had to stop. And my father has had some trouble with the police before in his life and I have not. So my father was definitely hoping that the cop was not going to do a background check on him. He jokingly, but not entirely not jokingly said, if the cop comes up here and he's kind of open to it, could you maybe do something with him to get us out of this ticket? The implication being that I should potentially blow the cop to get out of my father getting a ticket. But I consider that progress. I consider I that my father too, went my father went from being nervous and uncomfortable with my sexuality to thinking of it as the one thing that could save him from being arrested. I'm zero to a hundred right there. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you're pretty thrilled about me liking guys now, aren't you? Now that it's useful. <laughs> exactly. Now that it's useful. <laughs> sure did come in handy, didn't it? Now you also are an author, actually. You wrote the book, My Big Gay Life. So when did you decide to write My Big Gay Life? I wrote My Big Gay Life. I was actually going through a rough patch and I had a lot of writer's block and creative blocks. One of my dearest friends, Greg, who travels with me a lot on the road and is my travel agent said lots of people write their own book do a GoFundMe or like one of those crowd fundraiser stuff he's like you have a lot of friends and a lot of fans who would love for you to write down a lot of your stories of life and travel that you don't tell on stage because they're they're meant to be long stories in a book not necessarily stand-up jokes and so he said why don't you just put it up on social media and say hey you know if I wrote a book would people pre-order it would people donate enough money and pre-order enough of the book that it would fund me taking some private time to write the book and within a month we have triple the amount of orders that I would have needed to really make the dream come true. So I took the money and ran and locked myself in my house and spent six months hemming and hawing over chapters. It was a really fun project. I'm actually working on a new book right now that will still kind of be stories of my life but will all be about travel. Will all be funny crazy stories of travel around the world and weird things I've learned about traveling and my crazy life. That that was the first time I ever wrote something like that. It was very different. For sure. Well, let me ask you this then. So you have to take like kind of a switch to me like, okay, I'm not writing a stand up jokes right now. I'm actually telling my life in a serious book format versus. Yeah, me and my editor had a lot of talks about because initially I was just going to write 12 funny stories and kind of bang it out and throw it out there. And then I wrote one serious story and he called me and said, this is really beautiful, but you can't really write a book where it's all just like 12 funny silly stories but then there's just one serious story in the middle so it's like you either have to do a couple serious chapters or do no serious chapters and just make it funny and 
I really enjoyed writing the serious chapter because, again, that's not something I get to do a lot. Everything I usually do at the end of the day has to be funny. So I actually really enjoyed there were three chapters in there, really not a lot of laughs in them. They're just real, true, intimate stories of my life. And I was really excited to be able to try that and see what my fans thought of it. And it got a really good response. Those are usually the chapters. If someone's read my book and they come up to me, they will usually always start with by connecting like one of the more intimate stories and then talk about the funny things they liked. And that really means a lot to me. And I'll tell you this too. I think through this podcast, more people are going to see, obviously your funny side, like they always have, <laughs> but I think more is going to see your serious side too. Like, you know, I am a firm believer in accepting all human beings. I have some family members that are on the spectrum and I love them dearly. I think more people who that will listen to this are going to see that side of you. And people need to see that side too, because you got to remember all comedians are not just big goofballs. We love being clowns, but clowns take their makeup off at the end of the day and exactly. take off the funny red nose. There's a person underneath the red nose. Now, these are just for fun, so we're going to wrap it up here, and they're not long. So what is your paradise meal or favorite food, and why is it your favorite? Ooh, that's hard because I love food. Oh, I love stomach food. right here, buddy. I've eaten too much. Oh, trust me. Trust me. Oh, I love food so much. Here. I got a keg. If I could only eat one thing, well, I would still have to live it to two things. It would be duck in any form. I love duck and cheeses. I love cheese so much. All cheeses, wild cheeses, basic cheeses, che slices of cheese. If I could exist purely off of cheese, I would. Me too. Cheese is good, but for me, I got to go all the way to pepper jack. Oh, it's so good. Oh, now I have it in the fridge right now. I'm going to go take two tortillas and can make a pepper jack quesadilla. Heck yeah. <laughs> Save me one. You ship me one after this episode. <laughs> now, what is your favorite movie or TV show? And why do you like it? It can be yours or one you just watch. I would say two of my all-time favorite TV shows would be 30 Rock, which makes sense because it's about comedians making a TV show. So I relate to it a great deal. And then my next favorite TV show is probably Schitt's Creek. I think it's one of the best written, sweetest, most funny shows. And it has some of my favorite character actors in the world in it. And it's a show that you can watch. I think it's amazing when someone can write a comedy that you can still watch over and over again. Because usually part of the things about comedy is the surprise of the joke. So once you've seen an episode of a comedy once or twice, you know what's coming. So when you can actually make a comedy TV show where every time you watch it, you find new things, you notice different things, that to me is just amazing. And you know, the more I think of it, that's what I, what I liked about World's Dumbest, maybe. There's a lot going on in it. It's yeah. the same humor, but I still laugh at the joke when you're saying he kicked that tuba's ass. I mean, I still do, even though I've watched it 20,000 times. That's amazing. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. Not a problem, my friend. Now, what's been your favorite vacation you have ever taken? And why did you enjoy that vacation very much? I don't take a lot of vacations because I travel so much for work. And I get to go to a lot of amazing places for work, but that's technically not a vacation. You can use a work so I, if you like to for this answer. Well, I mean, I would say my favorite place I've ever been in the world. It's a tie between French Polynesia, which is where Bora Bora is, just like the most beautiful tropical place in the world, and France in general. I love France. So, which is also where I've definitely taken my favorite vacation, and I'm about to take another one this summer. I have two very, very dear friends. I officiated their wedding. We're very close. We're like brothers. We're like family. And they have a house in France, a vacation home. And almost every summer, me and our friend Greg, the guy I talked about before, and 
those two, we get together at their house for five, six, seven days. And we just swim and drink wine in the pool and listen to music and play board games and make each other laugh and debate big ideas in politics and cook big meals together. It's a beautiful home and it's a beautiful home because it's filled with some of the most wonderful people I know. It's always a privilege to spend time with people you love, but like Greg and I live in America, they live in Ireland and France. We're so far apart. So the fact that after all these years, we still find a way to come together once or twice a year and be together to kind of have our little family moment. That's some of my favorite vacations. I traveled with friends one time, actually. I went to Cedar Point, Ohio. So that was the one time I traveled. Oh, I know Cedar Point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, love it, man. Love the roller coasters. Big thrill of heights, big adrenaline junkie. It's like this. Don't put your hand in the shark's mouth. You kidding me? You know I'm going to do it. My final question is, are there are there any good memories that you want to tell our viewers about? If you do, why do you remember that memory the most? So before you answer, though, I'd like to end with something sentimental that made you feel good inside and a funny memory that made you fall on the floor laughing. And I'm not talking about your jokes. I'm talking about maybe at the expense of others. It could be one of yours, I oh, guess. Sure. With your family, world's dumbest. Your call, you want to answer it. I would say one of my favorite sentimental memories involves my friends Ian and Paul, the guys who have the house in France, which is when they asked me to officiate their wedding. I knew they were getting married I was already planning on going to the wedding and they called me and they like we have to talk to you about something very serious and I was like okay and they were like but it has to be like on zoom or facetime like we have to video conference and I was like Jesus what's okay what's going on and I was texting our friends saying like why are Ian and Paul like is this an intervention are they gonna tell me I have to go to like alcohol rehab like why do we have to facetime so seriously and they got on the zoom and they kind of like couldn't make eye contact with me and it got to the point where I was getting scared and I was like, is one of you sick? Are you breaking up? Like why? Again, you're not telling me what's going on. You just seem very serious and nervous. And now you're making me nervous. And then one of them just blurted out, we want you to marry us. And I went, okay, so the funny thing is when you say it like that, it sounds like you want me to be one of the husbands in your marriage. Is what you're asking is, will I like run the ceremony? Will I be the officiant at your wedding? They're like, yeah, that part. We want to ask you to do that. I said, okay, well, yeah, you guys can't even talk words. So you guys are idiots. I was like, you had me thinking that you had cancer or were dying. And what you said was you basically just asked me to marry you, but you are the two getting married. And we still to this stage joke about that because it was so important to them that I be the officiant that they were nervous I guess that I would say no which isn't say never say no to my friend <laughs> and a roll down laughing oh this is just very embarrassing and this is all on me I was flying through France last summer in between going to shows and I was in Charles de Gaulle airport which is the big Paris airport it's a massive airport and I was in the bathroom stall and this returns back to the everybody poops moment because at this particular moment I had to poop and then I realized there was no toilet paper at all in the bathroom stall and that has never happened to me in my entire life in an airport I suddenly realized it must happen to people fairly often it's not like they're checking the toilet paper every five minutes in an airport um and now I'm in a bathroom stall I speak some French but not enough to say there is no toilet paper will someone and there was really no one in the bathroom and this was back when you still had to wear masks to fly on planes because we were still coming out of the pandemic so I was sitting there and I was like, I can't take my underwear off and use my underwear because I can't flush my underwear down the toilet. I was like, can I take a sock off? Can I lose one sock? 
And then I realized I had extra KN95 masks with me. So I ended up having to use COVID masks to handle the situation. But then you can't flush those either. So then I just took the one bad, dirty COVID mask and kept wrapping it in clean masks and using the elastic part to elastic around it. So now I have like this poop grenade in my hand. And although the bathroom had been totally quiet and totally empty when I went into the stall and had the problem, the minute I opened the door, because I was like, you're just going to walk out and throw that in the garbage and keep it going. You'll go to a different bathroom, wash your hands. I walked out and there was 20 people, I swear to God, in that goddamn bathroom. And there was a cleaning attendant ready to restock the bathroom. And I just threw the masks in the attendant's big garbage can and looked at them and in French said, you're late. And I ran out of the bathroom. Now that's what you call a story right there. That is absolutely the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to me in all my trials. So what's your late in France? God, now I can't remember. Not to show to something or other. I, I screamed it and ran. At least it wasn't like, wee wee. <laughs> I should have said merde, which is what shit is in French. <laughs> Mayor, mayor. I think I need to travel with you now just so I can watch <laughs> Just remember to bring extra toilet paper now. I've learned that lesson. Well, Brad, I think that's all. Is there anything you like to say before we head out, man? Anything you want to promote? Close your remarks. Floor's on you. If anybody wants to follow me, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, Brad Locally, L-O-E-K-L-E. -E. Same for my website, Brad Locally, L-O-E-K-L-E. -E. And yeah, if I'm coming to a city or a town near you or doing something on TV, please tune in. I love to make people laugh. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Please join me for another episode coming very soon. I hope you enjoyed listening to me ramble. Thank you very much.